Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Amos chapter 8. We're going to finish the book of Amos tonight, which has been quite an adventure doing our first prophetic book. Uh, Here's the context. When we finished up last week, Amos had just had three visions. Vision of the locusts, the vision of the fire, and the vision of the plumb line. He's still got three more visions to go in the book. So he has six visions total um, in these last four chapters. And Amos has prayed for God to hold back the first two, but he accepts the plumb line. The plumb line is that God would drop a straight line right in the middle of Israel, and it would be compared against the walls that they had made. Um, So... um, And I'll read just the end of that, or the Amos chapter 7, verse 8. I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. This idea that God's, the worst, one of the consequences God has is when he lifts his presence or doesn't come amongst his people anymore. So, and that's at the level of locusts and fire. (laughs) This idea that God just won't be there for him anymore. And Israel then doesn't do very well. But then we get to the fourth vision, the one of the summer fruit that starts in Amos chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh, summer fruit, like, this is a good thing. Um, but I, I, when you look it up, the idea of summer fruit is that it's kind of late in the season. Like, it's been picked from the tree. And the idea of summer fruit is it looks really good in a basket. But you got a short amount of time before those bananas turn orange and the oranges turn yellow, and things start to happen to the fruit, and and it goes rotten bad, and it goes rotten fairly fast after it's been picked from the tree. So he says, Amos, what do you see? And so I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore, and the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Summer fruit being ripe, there's not much longer to enjoy the prosperity of northern Israel. Amos uses similar sounding words here, and he does this a few times in this chapter. In the Hebrew, the words summer and end are like one letter apart. So it would read like God said kayes and, like, and, and that kayes would happen soon. And so you get a play on words in this passage. Jesus, obviously, image, image of the fig tree where Jesus withers it and it dies on the, to the root. Uh, the idea that Israel is rotten and dead on the inside is definitely a part of this. He says God won't pass by them, which is another play on words for crossings. It sounds a lot like Hebrew when you read it in the Hebrew. So God won't Hebrew them anymore or yasap them anymore. Um, so Amos is using or saying things, and I think when you use play on words like that, the intention of this prophecy is that it gets remembered. And that when these things happen, they'll still remember these things or, be, or have them as resounding in their ears. Verse 4 says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail saying, when will the new moon be passed, that we might sell grain, and the Sabbath that we might trade wheat, making an ephath small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we might buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So verse 4 is pretty easy. The idea that you're swallowing up the needy or that your, your desires are such that you need people to serve them. And so you swallow up the needy. That's been a theme of Amos. We've hit it two, three times. Verse 5, this idea that you say, when will this thing be over? So when will be the new moon be passed? New moon was one of the feasts that they celebrated. So just this idea that as a heart for these people, these summer fruit people, that part of what's wrong with them is they don't like the things of God anymore. And that could be because they have a really bad teacher. Some of you have told me that. Um, so sometimes it's just because you're, it's really poorly done. But 
when it comes to these feasts and these things that God's given him that's good, like to sit there and say, oh, how long will this be over? How long do I have to put up with this stuff? Really says something about their heart. They're more interested in their own things than the things of God. And that's definitely part of the, the thing. So that idea of how long is this going to take because I have grain sales to make? I want to get back to my business. Like part of the Sabbath should be to take a rest from your business. But people want to get just back to it right away so bad. And quite frankly, this is one of the things I struggle with. I'm a workaholic. I don't know if any of you have figured that out about me. One of the things I got to do often is just backtrack. And frankly, Steph helps keep me in check on that where she's like, Sean, you're going overboard. We need more of your time. So the idea that you are more interested in things that have really no long-term benefit or little long-term benefit over the things God's called you to, even to your rest and to your feasts, um, says something about the heart that struggles with those. Frankly, when we're called to worship, we're called to prayer, worship, Bible study, and fellowship. All of these things are images or mirrors of heaven. They're the things we do because we love our Lord. So if those things aren't pleasing enough or satisfying enough to you, you start to wonder, well, what, what are you looking to do as a believer? What are you hoping for if you're not hoping for those things? Go sell that grain and see if it brings you more joy and hope and peace and patience and comfort and understanding. But go for it. Go all in. And I think the Bible often says that, like either you're, you're doing what God asks you to do or go do the other thing. You get the ephoth being small and the shekel being large. Two different measures. An ephoth is one of volume. A shekel is, is one of price or value. The idea is, and, and all I could think of is my half-filled cereal boxes. You ever notice when you open a box of cereal that's got like half food in there? Well, that's like a, 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 an ephoth that's not quite full. And so what they would do in the marketplace is they'd sell things saying, here's, you're going to get this much stuff. And then they would, you would buy it and you wouldn't have a full ephath there anymore. Same thing with the shekel and the shekel large, like you're weighing things out on a scale and you put false weights on the scale and it makes it so the person on the other side gets ripped off. So in, an equivalent of that would be inflating the dollar and making the dollar actually go less far than it should go. And so you're doing this idea of like you're sitting in a church service thinking about how to rip people off. There's something broken with that, like a box, like summer fruit in a basket. It's not going to last long. The idea of a pair of sandals, it's also used in chapter 2, verse 6. Kind of a warning or indictment or kind of a final conclusion here uh, is that they don't see a lot of worth in human beings. So, and then finally selling the bad wheat. You're actually going out and taking things that shouldn't be sold and selling them to people. So a lot of this idea that God's watching over these business dealings, they're significant, they're sinful, and God sees how we conduct our business and what we do. So not only the heart of wanting to like finish up with the feast so you can get out and do bad things, but also the idea that these things weigh against what God witnesses in your life. So if any of you are ripping people off at work, stop that and stop it soon. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. So again, verse 7 is God sees it all. God sees everything you do. And for some people that's a good thing and for some people that's terrifying. The land Shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river and heave, which means to cast out and subside like the river Egypt. River of Egypt would swell in the spring and it would overflow its banks. And when it did that, because it was so flat in the area, the water would spread out over all these fields and all the animals that lived in the river would, you know, throughout the year do their business in the river, and you'd get what's called sediment, this rich, fertile stuff that sits at the bottom of rivers. So when the Nile would overflow, it would cast out the poop everywhere. And that's what would fertilize the fields. So anybody coming out of Egypt or familiar with Egypt would understand verse 8 very well. But the idea here is, because God's not going to forget what we do, shouldn't that make us a little bit nervous? That every so often the river's going to heave over and all our garbage will be out on display for people. That that's just the nature of things and the idea that God doesn't forget things. God, oddly enough, forgets the humble and repentant. Nothing in the scriptures that says he forgets the arrogant and the sinful. 
He remembers it all, and he will make it all right at some point or another. So what a blessing when he says he throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. When we ask for forgiveness, it's gone in a second. When we don't ask for forgiveness, when we harden our heart towards God, God doesn't forget unrepentant sin. He actually remembers it. And God knows that there's a ripple effect to that. So any of their works, implying good works or bad works, God actually doesn't forget our good works either on the flip side of that coin. He does forget the good works of unrepentant people. So it works in both directions. He remembers our good works and he forgets our bad works when we're in repentance. So here's a transition from the northern kingdom specifically, where it says, to a general word of all or all of it shall tremble. Josephus records that there was an earthquake during this period of time with Amos, and it's recorded that about 10,000 people died as homes fell on top of them. So there's a literal immediate idea of the earth heaving or shaking that actually happens. It's part of why we still have Amos recorded today. Um, but then you get this idea of the river and it flooding, which would happen all the time. But we have a transition here. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and I don't like this verse, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. So it transitions almost to kind of a future time, because there's this thing that's going to happen to the northern kingdom, but then there's this thing that's coming in the day of the Lord. And they both get prophesied together, because when the first one is proven true, we should really pay attention to the second one, and that's the nature of prophecy. So it says in that day, the reference here of that day is one that we see now as a growing biblical theme. We saw through the Torah that there was the place that the God would put his name. And we found out later that when that was revealed, it was Jerusalem. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there is the name of God that will be revealed or this Messiah that will come. And we find out in Matthew that the name of that person is Jesus. But then there's this third element to the Bible. There is a day of the Lord that's coming. The day when the Lord makes everything right. And he rights the wrongs and he rewards the goods. And that's the day of judgment. This day of darkness or calamity, which is this idea of God's presence being there for the good and him completely withdrawing from the evil. So in that day, the day of the Lord, we see a few things. Um, first of all, we know there was a major eclipse in 763 B.C., so again, this happens immediately. It's not associated with the incoming of Assyria, so it's a hard one to match up if you want to go there. We know there was an eclipse, Matthew 15, 33, at Jesus' crucifixion. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Literally, the day became night, and it happened at noon, like verse 9 says. So it's much easier to take verse 9 and associate that with Jesus Christ. That there is a thing that happened on a day, and it happened at the time that it was said that it would happen here. That day of the Lord would be a bitter day, but it's a discrete amount of time, a singular day that's going to be happening. Um, in Revelations 8.12, there's another reference to an eclipse on a day of the Lord. Revelations 8.12 says, Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and one-third of the night. So you get this reference to this idea that eclipses are associated somehow with what's happening with the Lord. Um, unpacking that becomes a mathematical problem, and I am not a mathematician. But that becomes an interesting element of God using those things and those images, those portents, as to telling humanity what he's doing. The idea is consistent then with this being true with Amos, being true with Jesus, and being true in the time of Revelation, all being the day of the Lord, this unreferenced kind of thing. It says, I will turn, so there's a series of images emphasizing how culture is going to be in this pervasive struggle and God's going to let that happen. The songs here are for idol worship and then you get to the idea of baldness on every head. The idea here is, is the idea of baldness is one that's open or revealed. So one of the things we saw in Leviticus is when somebody had like head lice or some sort of skin condition, they would shave it and then they wanted to see that skin heal up without hair in the way. So the idea of baldness when it came to that element was something to do with that 
those impurities are revealed and everybody can see what they look like. So when you think of baldness on every head, there's the literal use of that, which we saw in Leviticus, is that everybody has head lice, all have sinned and fall short of God, and everybody's hair gets cut off. Because we're just going to see what's there and what's not. In a spiritual sense, everyone's revealed before God. You don't get to hide. So in that sense, there's probably a blessing to being bald, because you're always just open and people can see you. But there's when it says a baldness on every head, if that's a literal thing, clearly natural baldness is not what we're talking about. Because if kids are bald and women are bald and everybody's bald, there's something wrong with the environment or the food that's being eaten or the radiation in the air. So this idea of all heads going bald, if that's going to be treated as a, uh, a kind of a literal thing, then it's an indicator of sickness amongst the people, a deep sickness. Like the mourning for an only son. That's an interesting phrase to throw in the middle of a prophecy. Um, this idea of an only son being killed goes all the way back to Abraham for the immediate readers. But we look at it and clearly it harkens back to Jesus being the only son. And its end is like a bitter day. All of this is not something that makes us feel good when it happens. Persistent images being laid out throughout the whole Bible. There's a mourning, there's an only son, there's a firstborn, and we see this kind of language consistently in the prophets, which makes it pretty cool when Jesus comes around. The best Bible studies in the history of the world had to be the ones after the resurrection when Jesus came back and started teaching the disciples where he was in the Bible. Zechariah 10, 12, 10. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for the firstborn. So again, almost all the prophets have references like this in there. So when, you, when Jesus explains that's actually about him, that had to be pretty exciting to just see that over and over and over again. It's not like God didn't warn them. In fact, you get the sense when we read through these prophets that God can't wait to tell us what's going to happen because it brings glory to him. And the excitement in heaven when Jesus rose from the dead and that gets revealed to all of humanity, that had to be quite a celebration because they'd been waiting for four or 5,000 years for humans to see that God had been working a plan over millennium. And it's quite a moment. So this sounds like a warning to the northern kingdom, but I think that it could also be read as like God can't wait to drop in clues. So he's telling the northern kingdom how to behave, but he's also throwing in references to, this is bitter like losing a firstborn son. And he throws these things in there almost in anticipation. Verse 11. Now it goes to future tense. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and the, uh, north to east, don't you always say north to south or east to west? North to east, just to be to catch your attention. From north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's an interesting thing. So are they talking about there's no longer going to be a prophetic voice in Israel? Like, is that the thirst or the famine that we're talking about? Is there a period that's going to happen in history? And fam famine is a bad thing. The worst thing we can think of is not having food to eat and withering away and dying because we can't eat food. But the idea here is that there's something more, there's a spiritual food. Hearing the words of the Lord becomes like a food to us. It becomes a theme in the Bible too. And a lot of these things are getting planted in these prophecies. Hearing the words of the Lord is a new kind of diet that's going to happen. And when we don't hear it, something in us is like driven towards it. And this is, I think, something that Steph and I kind of realized when we first encountered like actual chapter by chapter Bible study is we started to really like it. And it became kind of a diet, like to where we got impatient when we went out to a restaurant and they only served us a verse. That got upsetting. So we were like, no, 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 we would like an, an entire meal, thank you. And you start to really pine for it. Matthew 4, 4, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It becomes a way of life, something we learn to desire or thirst after. And Amos is saying there's going to be a time when you want to hear God's word. Clearly, the northern kingdom doesn't want to hear God's word. They don't want anything to do with God. But what would cause them then to actually want to hear God's word and go looking north to east and sea to sea and not be able to find it anymore? What's happened to all the believers? 
there's going to be a season when on this planet where there aren't believers out there anymore. And so we're looking into the future because we haven't really seen that happen. There's always been somebody willing to speak God's word. So what does it mean that, that they have God's word, it's eternal, but they can't hear it? It doesn't say they can't read it. It's that they can't hear the words of the Lord. So does that mean that it's been outlawed? That like YouTube has shut down all of a sudden? Because frankly, there's a book there that's to be read, but the idea that you can't just go and hear it get read to you, that would be kind of a tragedy. So is God's word being silenced? That's one possibility. Is, or is it just that God's word is being ignored and nobody's bothering to teach it? Or is it that people are so lost in their sin that they're actually deaf to it? And there are some references where people, it talks about as believers, we have our ears opened and our eyes opened to see and hear the things of God. And it could be that there's so much blindness and deafness due to sin that people can't hear the word of God and in, there's a desperation in that. They're looking all over the place for the answers, but they can't find the right answers because the one place they want to, they, they can find them, they're not willing to look. Or four, is it that there'll be an era of time where there's no prophetic voice? No one's actually proclaiming God's words anymore. So God gives in his revelation this idea. Um, either people stop teaching it or God stops speaking it. But there is this idea that people twist the word of God into their own thing. And there's kind of, I think, a percentage creep that we have to watch out for uh, when that happens. It's actually to be resisted so that God's word comes out in the forefront when we go through and we teach it because people need to eat it. So also sea to sea, north to east does not really necessarily refer to Israel in any way, shape, or form. There's only one sea on one side of Israel. So to go looking sea to sea, if, if you think geographically or where, or where this was being given, we're talking about a worldwide phenomena. Or at least like the North Sea of Britain to the Mediterranean Sea. Like, that, you know, maybe they're talking about just Europe or something to that effect. But I think the implication of those words is really this is going to be a worldwide thing. There won't be the word of God being taught. So seeking the word of the Lord, not a problem. If you are seeking it, it implies that you desire it. So that idea of teaching the full counsel of God at its entirety and going all over the place and trying to find something like that. And God actually is saying this is kind of what's going to happen, in part because they don't want to hear him in the first place. But it roots the idea that the word of God is spiritual food, and it's a diet that should be balanced, regular, and robust. We should be getting the word of God, not only through Sunday teachings, but through our own Bible study, through listening to things on tape, I'm sure Amos thought of podcasting, you know. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. Think of that language. I ate them. And if you guys eat like I eat, that's a pure joy. When you get something good in front of you, I had, we had pork roast today for lunch. I had seconds. And then I had dessert and went back for more pork, pork roast. When your words were found, I ate them. Man, I just, I read through Amos and then I wanted to go back to Exodus and then I was digging into Ezekiel. I can't get enough of it. And when I want dessert, I'll go for revelation, right? And so your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing in my heart for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What a amazing message. So what are some of the things we lose when we don't hear the word of God? I'm going to go through a bunch of Bible verses on this idea of eating the word of God. We lose our ability to praise if we don't hear the word of God. So this is what's, when you've got a famine of the word of God, this is what happens. This is what we're missing. Psalm 119, 160. The entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Boy, I can't even sing. I can't sing a psalm if I'm not getting that. Hearing's a biblical condition. And so that Romans 10, 17 is another one. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we don't have the word of God hearable, we actually lose our ability to hear. That's an odd thing. To hear it is to grow in faith and to not have it is to not grow in faith. The woman at the well, the Samaritan, she wants to know where to worship. Jesus meets her and she's like, where do I worship? Do I have to worship in uh, Samaria or can I worship? At the, where do I have to worship? And the Lord of God kind of shares with her, like, there's going to be a time where you can just go straight to the Lord yourself. That famine's going to be over. But when Jesus met the Samaritan at the well, she was in the middle of a famine. She just wanted the word of God. She wanted to be able to hear it get taught. 
Sanctification is something we miss out on. 1 Timothy 4.5. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If we're not hearing the word of God, there's a sanctification process that doesn't happen. There's a maturity and a growth that doesn't happen. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's our spiritual sword, Ephesians 6.17. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We don't even have the weapons to fight a battle without hearing the word of God on a regular basis. It's the baby food. But it's also the staple food in our life. Or the slam dunk Hebrews passage, right? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We're at such a loss. We have such a famine without it. Such a loss in our life to where if we don't have it, we just pine for it as believers. First John links the word to Jesus himself. John 1 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was and and the word was God. Wait, I just repeated that. The word was with God and the word was God. Like isn't that there's gonna be a time where there's a famine where you search all over the world and you just want the Lord to be with you. This idea that the word is actually God himself. Our passage says, but you shall not find it. The idea of a true famine is that God's word is simply gone, right? It's not there to be found anymore. To hear God's word is actually a gift from God, and it's not to be neglected. So we currently don't have that problem. We actually get to hear the word of God. We're not in a famine because when we seek and we want to hear more of God's word, it's there to be heard. Matthew 4.24, and he said to them, take care to what you hear, with what measure you meet, it shall be meted to you, and unto you that hear, more shall be given. For he that has, it shall be to him given, and he that has not, it shall be to him that which is taken away. That's a weird concept, but here's the core of it. If you love the Lord and you want to hear more of the Lord, you'll hear more of the Lord. If you're not interested in the things of God and you don't care, it's going to be hard for you to hear the Lord, the voice of the Lord. And so there's this idea, for those that reject God, they actually lose the ability to hear God. Less and less and less leads to deafness, spiritual deafness. The prophetic gaps are going to happen. There's one with Isaiah from 690 to 650. That's a short 40-year gap in Israel's history, no prophets. Then there's a bigger gap that comes from Malachi to John the Baptist. That's 450 years. That's a really big gap. And you could argue, depending on how you define the word prophet in the New Testament, you could argue that since Jesus, there haven't actively been prophetic voices outside of the word of God. There are some schools of Christian faith that believe there's prophets all over the place. And there's some schools of Christian faith that say we really haven't seen a John the Baptist since Jesus. Jesus was the prophet. And we have the written word of God with which we can speak it in a prophetic voice. So there's different ways to look at that, but we have had seasons or periods where there's been this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those people that recognize that not hearing the word is a famine. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, and then the diaspora happens, and we've had 2,000 years. You can look anywhere on this planet, you won't find Jesus incarnate, you'll only find Jesus in spirit, and the only way to encounter that is to have your hearing turned on, and to listen to it. So you got Assyria trying to eliminate Judaism, you got Jesus in the grave for three days, you've got the faithful being raptured and gone, all three of those situations, there's kind of an absence of God at the end of it. And so, prophetically, you're reading a text that's kind of, you have to decide where that's going to fall. Then you get to verse 13. In that day, the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst. Youth won't help you. Right? And those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as our God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. They're referencing the false teachings of Samaria. And the teachings of Samaria were ones of convenience. And the idea of Beersheba, you'd say, well, that's south of Judah in Beersheba. Yeah, but they would take pilgrimages down to Abraham's Beersheba well. And that pilgrimage was something they saw as valuable spiritually. And we haven't really heard of it because it was part of the Samaritan religion. And so they're, re- re- they're referencing this Samaritan version of Judaism that really wasn't what God commanded at all. You're going to do all these things and they won't do anything for you. The reference to Dan there is where they built actually golden cows that went with their temples. 
It says they. Second Chronicles 11 has the faithful migrating. So they shall fall and never rise again. These cities aren't going to just disappear for no reason. They're going to disappear because they didn't follow the Lord. And so some people struggle here because they're talking about these 10 tribes in the Samaritan or the Northern Kingdom, and the capital of that is Samaria. And so some people believe they never disappeared again, but there really aren't any lost tribes in the Bible. It's kind of a Raiders of the Lost Ark myth or something like that. Um, we see in Second Chronicles 11, verse 13, that from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in Israel took their stand with him. They actually went to Jerusalem. Then we see that for the Levites, they left their common lands and their possessions, and they came into Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons rejected them from serving as priests. And Lord, we know in the time of Ahab, they were killing faithful priests. So a lot of those priests just took off and went down to Judah. So you've got literally people from all 12 tribes now living in Judah and in Jerusalem from all these other places. So when, this, when the northern kingdom disappears, it's not like the tribe of Dan disappears. There's still Danites. There's still Asherites. There's still Nephtalites, right? Because they came out of these northern kingdoms um, and they moved out. Second Chronicles 11, 16. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, they came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So as Assyria is going to disappear, when, when they say they, they're talking about the they that are the people that didn't like the Lord that were still left in the northern kingdom. At this period when Amos is talking, it says they shall fall and never rise again. They're not talking about the ten tribes. They're talking about the unfaithful people that stayed in those northern, that northern kingdom area. So final judgment, final end to this Samaritan sin that's been going on for a couple hundred years. The audience here then becomes multifaceted. The people listening to this are the people in the northern kingdom. Um, they are the people that have rejected the first warnings of Amos, um, but also Hosea, where we're going next, also Elijah, also Elisha. They've been warned again and again and again not to do this. And God's basically saying we're going to kind of be done with that. So in the end, God is not going to tolerate this sin forever. It's going to end. So he's done his part in sorting it out. Then you get to Amos 9. We get a final vision. So we had the summer fruit. We have this idea of this famine that'll come in. And now we get a sixth vision of Amos, which is, um, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, strike the doorposts that the threat, the altar, by the way, is right in front of the temple. So when we're then talking about doorposts, we're actually talking about this big giant door that the temple has. That's what you're facing when you're at the altar. I saw the Lord stand by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of all of them. And I will slay the last of them with a sword who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So we have the image here of the destruction of a temple or a temple falling down and the capital above the door that would block egress. So there's people in there that won't get out of it. It sounds a bit repetitive and it's emphatic, um, but also giving kind of these versions of destroyed temples that are going to happen. Um, there are, there is the strike of, there's the striking of the doorposts, which is a destruction. Then there's a breaking that happens. And then after the breaking, there's a slaying that happens. And then after this idea of them trying to scatter, well, how are they scattering if they've already been slayed? So you get a sense that like things are getting destroyed multiple times here. So first of all, the striking of the Northern Kingdom, Assyria does come and strike and the Northern Kingdom's done. And they actually take out these false temples in Samaria, Dan, and Bethel. Then you get this breaking that happens and break them on the heads of all of them. Again, you could argue that that there's a second breaking or striking that happens in the case of Judah. Judah's going to fall to Babylon. So you think that if you look at it this way, this could actually be kind of a historic account. And then you have a, a break them on the heads of them all. Well, if they're all done, then how are you slay the last of them? Because the last sentence just said all. So then if you get to there, I will slay the last of them with the sword. There is this idea that there are still Jews left after the fall of the northern kingdom and after the fall of Judah. They come back to the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple again. And then it says, I'll slay the last of them. Then you get to this idea of that temple falling. Literally, the, th the third temple was broke by Rome. 
So if you count the false temples of the northern kingdom, then you count the temple of Judah, then you get this other one. Rome literally locked the doors and the people that had run away or tried to make their last stand were burnt inside the temple. Um, then it says, I'll slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. The people that were fighting Rome didn't, weren't the only Jews on the planet. There's still more Jews left on the planet. So there's a diaspora, there's persecutions. Rome persecutes the Jewish people, they go all over the planet. And then it says, he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So there's just the idea that there's going to be this, you won't get away from the punishment of God. It's going to keep coming and keep coming. There's a spiritual element to all of this that you see that there is an idea that as God walks away, these rebellions against God continue to fall. And at the beginning in verse 1, the Lord stands through all of this. He stands by the altar and he makes these judgment calls. It's not like he's distant. He's part of this. And he's part of this process. Uh, Matthew 24.1 then comes to a different light. Jesus went out from the temple and he departed. So when he leaves the temple in, Matthew, in, in the Gospels, there's definitely a spiritual motion that happens here. Where God, Jesus goes in, he tries to clear it out. There's a checking on that. But essentially then, there's a, if you break that down in that way, there are six different elements to this process. If you count the Lord standing too, and God himself seeing this all through to the end could be kind of a divine perfection. This is part of the plan. The rebellion against God won't stand, and he's going to continue to cull the Jewish people until they figure that out, until all that's left in the book of Revelation is a remnant, a remnant of people that decide to turn and serve the Lord God with their whole heart, mind, and soul. But God loves these people. He's going to love them throughout all of history, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So there's this idea that there's no running from God, uh, and then verse 2 builds on that idea. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Can't get away from me by going off that way. Though they climb to heaven, they try for holiness. There I will bring them down. You can't, get it, you can't work your way to God's favor. So low to high, digging their own holes, religious constructs and, and, and things. Psalm 139.8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hole, behold, you are there. For David, when he writes that, that's a good thing. When Amos writes this for sinners, that's a bad thing, right? It's the same God either way. You can't run from God. And for the godly, that's wonderfully assuring. And if I say you can't run from God and you're a sinner, that's almost like a threat. But it's the same God behind both statements. Verse 3, and though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, or actually on top of Carmel, maybe this has to do with food. From there I will search and take them, though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea. From there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and, I, and it shall slay them. And I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Here we are at a God that is delivering judgment. There's no way to read that any different. So this idea of uh, Mount Carmel uh, we know just from geography that Mark Carmel is where the Jews run when they're in trouble. There's thousands of caves that are part of Mount Carmel as a system. Joshua, when he was finishing off Adonai Zedek, there's a battle at Mount Carmel. There's signs from the sun and the moon, and people are hiding in caves. Revelation 6, frankly, some people argue the book of Joshua is a mirror of Revelation that you have a real Israel people being led by the Lord taking the land, and in Revelation you have a real Jesus leading the people of the Lord to take the planet. Revelation 6, the kings of the earth end up at the very end of things, at the very end of the battles, they end up hiding in caves. And so, and if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then also I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Leviticus 26, 23 promises this is how God will behave. If you are with God, he'll bless you. If you're against God, he'll be against you too. So you make an enemy out of this. So Joshua and Revelation both start with trumpets announcing the, the attack, and they end with kings hiding in caves, starting and ending the same way. Verse 5, Lord God of hosts. 
He who touches the earth and it melts and all dwell there mourn and it shall swell like the river and subside like the river Egypt. So you got a, a repeat of that image. He who builds his layers in the sky has founded his strata in the earth. He who calls the waters of the sea and pours them on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Again, you got this layers in the sky is ma'alau, which literally means stairs or this idea of an ascent or higher chambers. So there seems to be an awareness here of atmospheric layers of some sort, which actually is true. Strata in the earth, yasad. There's a founding of the earth that comes like banded hyssop. So the idea of a, a yasad is a binding of things. That when you look under the planet, you're going to see layers of earth that are bound together somehow or another. God's knotted it together is literally what it means in the Hebrew. God's bundling. And he pours them out. It's a not so subtle reference to the judgment of Noah. When judgment comes, it's come and poured out. And the idea calls back to um, in Israel this knowledge of who God is. Know who God is. God made the earth. He made the sky. He made the earth below it. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. He made it all. And then you see the word Lord God here. Another phrase. Oftentimes we see the Lord in capital letters. Here we see God in capital letters. But it's the same Yahweh being used there. Only this is King Yahweh. It's used 12 times in the last three chapters of Amos. King Yahweh. And there's an emphasis there on who governs and who rules. This final judgment comes from someone who is ruling over us. Master Yahweh, King Jesus, Lord God. The Lord is his name. One world, one God, one path, one king. And so we see that emphasized in Amos. And then this idea of like, if you still resist the judgment of Amos and what's coming here, verse 7, aren't you like the are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel? This is God speaking, says the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? This is interesting. God's claiming that he moves nations around on this earth, and not just the Jewish people. He's the one that put the Philistines where they're at to test David and other kings of Israel. So there's this idea that the Ethiopians, the Cush, had already moved. So the Philistines had already come over from Crete. So Israel isn't above or unique in that he pulled them out of Egypt. He's moved other nations too. So the question God's asking here is, do you think you're that special? Really? And we know that the Bible shows Israel to be an exceptional nation, but they're not above God's punishment and judgment either. God still judges them. God claims he's moved other nations. He's sovereign over all of them. This is a concept that the Jews love to forget. So verse 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. He makes a distinction here. I'm going to destroy the northern kingdom. They called themselves Israel. You're going to get destroyed, but the house of Jacob? That's not going to be destroyed. So I'm going to keep the Jewish people, but I'm going to destroy this sinful nation. And he makes a distinguish between a civic government and the people themselves. And oddly enough, like when Judah gets destroyed the same way for the same reasons, the Israelites don't get their own nation again until 1948. Once again, God just gives them a nation and hands them to them. One of the only nations on earth that gets formed without a battle. Like, they're just handed territory by Britain. Here, you can have a country. So the idea that they would be destroyed, they'd be spread out, they wouldn't be able to find the word of the Lord, they'd search all over and it wouldn't be revealed to them and they'd be deaf to it. And there's going to be a season where this sin is going to lead the Jews to hundreds of years of not being able to hear the word of the Lord because they've rejected Jesus. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. God wants them to come back. Yet he will utterly destroy them. So this idea, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, is also kind of a promise. If God's manipulating all the nations of the earth, and there are some nations that have tried to destroy Israel, God's made a promise that the people, the Jewish people, will never be destroyed. Frankly, to our generation, this promise has been kept despite the world's best efforts. I'll remind you, Egypt, with, when you see Moses in a basket, that's because the Egyptians were trying to kill the Jews, all of them. 
They're trying to wipe them out through genocide. Then you get Assyria. They make every effort to wipe out every single town. They get all the way to Jerusalem, and, and God intervenes in, through, with Hezekiah and saves them. You get Persia. They try to purge all Hebrew people and kill them all, and you get the story of Esther. They miraculously get saved. Then you get Rome with the diaspora. They try to kill the Jews, only the Jews run away. <laughs> but they do their best to absolutely destroy every Jew that they can find. The caliphates of the Middle East have tried. Germany tried in the 1930s and 40s to destroy the Jews. And today we have jihad. We have an Islamic coalition of people ready to destroy the Jewish people. Historically, every nation that's tried to destroy the Jewish people has in the end been destroyed themselves. It's, it's like a water balloon trying to take on a brick wall. And if we think the nations of this world are that strong, we'd be surprised when we actually throw the power of this world against the power of God. It's the water balloon that splatters all over the place. You'd think Rome was untouchable 800 years. And they not only dissolve, but they actually become or adopt Christianity as their faith. And the Romes become Italians. The Vikings become Swedes. The Angles become English, right? We just see these changes happen all over the place. When, when God comes in, the enemies of God evaporate. They can't stand against God. The house of Jacob then becomes a broader term for the Hebrew people. Not just the northern tribes. We're not doing tribes here. We're not doing Judah versus Ephraim. We're talking about the house of Jacob, all the Hebrews. For surely, verse 9, I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. They're going to spread out all over the earth. As grain is sifted in a seed, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, the calamity shall not overtake us or overcome us. You say the Lord's coming and there's going to be judgment. Oh, the Lord's not going to get me. He's not going to bother with me. The Hebrews living all over the world, who's going to stay true to the Lord God Almighty and who doesn't? And I think this is an amazing piece of human history, how despite whatever culture Jewish people are in, there has been a segment of Jewish people that have retained their worship of the Lord in that nation. From Russia to China to the United States of America, Jews remain distinct, they keep their traditions, and they do it despite all cultural norms to try to get them to level out to that culture. They're very stubborn people, and that's why God picked them. He likes that they hold off. He likes that they resist. He says it's going to be sifted like a sieve. I don't know how many people have actually used a sieve. Do you guys know? So the idea when you sift flour is you get little chunks in it, right? You've ground it down to a powder. And to get those last little chunks, you just kind of shake it. And you, there's like a little grate or like screen underneath. And the soft, fine ground powder falls down below. And the hard stuff that you want to throw away stays in the sieve. That's a violent thing to do to that poor little powder, and what God's going to do to the Jewish people over human history is going to be kind of violent. And there's going to be pain in that. There's going to be a death in that. But I love this promise. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. God won't lose one godly Jewish person. And that idea that he's going to hold true to that, that, that not the smallest grain shall fall, God makes a promise that he doesn't lose his own people. And quite frankly, we know from the Gospels and from the Epistles that we're now grafted into that promise of God, the promises of God. This is one of them. If you love the Lord, he won't let you fall. He has your soul and he's not going to let it go unless you want him to. There is this beauty in this. John 17, 12, just to connect this to the New Testament. Jesus prays for this to be a point of completion for God, this prophecy. While I was with them in the world, I kept your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Not one of them is lost. Jesus is proud of the fact that he hasn't lost the people that love him with all their heart. That it hasn't been his fault that people have fallen away from the Lord. Hebrews and believers are going to be shaken throughout the history of the world, but we are kept by God. Notice that we don't keep ourselves. And I think this is an important element in this verse. We're kept by God. All the sinners. <laughs> All the sinners have another thing coming. There's a promise in the opposite direction. If you're embracing your sin, you have another thing coming. And 
and and to be careful about this, an all-powerful omniscient God is promising that sin won't go unpunished. Has to be dealt with. So either Jesus takes the sin for you, or you're taking it yourself. And that's not a good position to be in. So um, there is that idea of, of it shall not be overtaken. The arrogant and haughty think they're too clever, they're too fast for God, that they can put it off. But there is an idea that you will, it will be something that you can't outrun what God's going to do here. Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a very consistent biblical idea. There is righteousness and those who pursue it. There is sin and those who pursue that. Uh, then he says, then I love how Amos ends. So we've had a lot of downers with Amos, a lot of punishment, but he ends on hope. And we'll see that God never says a punishment without a way of escape. And so here it is. On that day, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Tabernacle there is house or hut or tent. I'm going to raise up the tent of David. What was the tent of David all about? It was, a, it was a guy who was after God's own heart. And God's going to raise that back up and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and I will rebuild it as in the days of old that may possess the remnant of Edom or Adam there. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing is not an immediate thing of Israel coming or Assyria coming. He's saying Assyria, northern kingdoms are going to be destroyed, but there are some future applications. On that day means not the day that we're talking about here, not the punishment of Assyria. There's a future day. Again, this is how prophecy goes. In fact, on that day in verse 11 is translated Yom Hu Yom. Day his day is the literal translation. There's an emphatic, emphatic version of this, that there is a day, that day that's coming. And when you say his day or Yom is typically means his, there is a day that's referring to this Messiah that's not named yet. So you could, knowing the name, we could say the day Jesus' day, I will raise him. So Jesus would raise the house of David once more. When Jesus came on the scene, the house of David, the throne of David, was all but forgotten. It was simply something they recorded in the temple so they could track who was a descendant of David. When Jesus claims the kingship, he's re-raising that house of David once again in humility. Acts 15, 16 says, after this I will return. There's an idea that God's not done with Israel and he's not done at all with Israel because Jesus promises he'll return and take that kingship and reestablish it on earth. There is a booth or a tabernacle that is humble. The idea of a tent is that in the Feast of Booths, they'd all go stay outside and make their own little makeshift tents. The idea is that this is a humble thing. It's not grandeur that God's looking for. He's looking for just this simple, humble house of David to be re-raised. He uses three words there, repaired, raised up, and rebuilt. Three actions. He repairs the house with Jesus, a sinless king. He raises up Jesus. Literally, we're on Easter today, right? So there's a resurrection where there's a raising. And then the idea of rebuilding, Jesus himself says, I'm the cornerstone, and we're going to rebuild a new house of David. And that is what they call the church. So you have these very kind of clear connections to this future that's coming. So at the same time Amos is telling the northern kingdom they're done for, he's also telling the northern kingdom that God's not done with them. And there's going to be something that happens in the future that's beautiful. The raising up there, Isaiah 16.5 says that it's done in mercy. God's actually raising up this new kingdom, this new house of David, so that the guilty won't be punished. And so as you put these prophecies together, you get more and more of a picture of who Messiah is. It's beautiful. There's a physical and spiritual rebuilding of what salvation is. Isaiah 65, for you note takers. Jeremiah 31, for you Bible study people. Ezekiel 37, for those that just want to tie together all the prophecies. Zechariah 12 through 14. And of course, Romans 9 through 11. You want me to say those again? Okay. This is what the pause button's for. Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, Zechariah 12 through 14, Romans 9 through 11. Have a great Bible study with those. God's going to rebuild his house and he's putting it all back together. Acts 15 quotes these verses 
to argue that the church is the fulfillment of this. So the way that the early believers treated Amos is that this was about their lives at that time. A rebuilding that's going to happen. This argument helps the church support the expansion to the Gentiles. Because God says the remnant of Edom, which some people believe that what was meant there was the word Adam or mankind. Or at least, even if you just look at it, Edom, Edom was the, the break off of Esau, right? So there was a group of people that didn't choose to follow, that gave up their inheritance. He's going to bring back all the people that gave up their inheritance, and it says, and all the Gentiles. So there's an emphatic idea here that there's a remnant that's going to be brought back. And God's going to do this rebuilding of David's house so that it reaches out to the world. This is the good news. Good news. God kept all his promises, and by raising up Jesus Christ, that means there's a rebuilding season that's going to happen next, according to Amos. So when Jesus gets raised, the people are pretty excited because there's a new kingdom that just got founded. There's a rebuilding, and we are living stones in that kingdom, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're here to build up that church. So there's a new glorified kingdom, which includes non-Hebrews, which includes those that gave up their inheritance in Edom, and the expectations of Gentiles somehow becoming part of the Jewish traditions honors everything about what God's done on earth. He started with the whole earth, he's going to end with the whole earth. James interprets this passage to include everyone, the remnant of those that love God that are everywhere. This is what he says in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 17. So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. And James is saying that because he's read the prophecies. This is what God does, you guys. He's kept his promises. This is why the disciples were so excited to go out and say, he is risen. And then they would shout back, he's risen indeed. This is the true thing. And it's true in that all these prophecies didn't just have the first fulfillment with Assyria, with Babylon, but with Jesus, they've now had a second fulfillment. And if that's true, they also have a third fulfillment coming. But now we're two-thirds of the way there. This is pretty exciting when we read the prophets. So this house of David, Jesus, a tent repaired to include it in the world, a tent that's been raised up by God, is then going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a changing or a rebuilding that happens. It's not going to look like the Jewish traditions and the Mosaic priesthood and the Levitical law. It's going to look a little different from that. But it's still the house of David. It's still the spirit of David. This is what I call hope because I'm a Gentile and I get to join in on this. This is a day when Gentiles can be brought in and grafted in. So thousands of years of Israel, it's not that that's not important anymore, but it's just that other people can join this house and we can become part of it. So the point of judgment, and I think this is great how Amos ends like this, the point of judgment is hope, not revenge, not vengeance. It's that if you do these things, there is a dead end to that, but there's also a way of escape. There's a certain justice to that idea. God will punish, and we've seen that in history. He will also provide a new house of David, which is a place of salvation for all those who love the Lord. Verse 13, behold, look at this. The point of prophecy is for us to see things. Behold, to witness or to see. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. By the way, mountains are not where... Um, Grapes typically grow well, right? So there's going to be a time and an age when even it, it seems like the worker is going to be overtaken by the reaper. The person planting the seeds will overtake the person harvesting. That's an interesting image. The idea here is there's going to be a time when it's just blessing upon blessing. They overlap with each other. You're going to have new believers hanging out with old believers. You're going to have people getting blessed and they, they were praying for it and, and, and the answer to the prayer comes even before they started praying. And we see things like that in the kingdom all the time. The plowman, the reaper, the treader, the sower. We're not going to be outside of work when this age comes. There's plenty of work to be done. It's just that that work will be exciting because we see the results of it as we're doing it. Blessings still have workers doing work. God's people, I think, are busy people. They're not lazy and they're not idle. So they can be a workaholic, just be a workaholic for the kingdom of God. 
and put it in the right place. So in those days, God's people get busy, they do work, and they see the results of that work and the blessings of that work pile up on each other. Verse 14, I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall make gardens and eat fruit from them. And I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I've given them, says the Lord. This is compelling, given that they were scattered all over the earth, and now they have a place where they are once again growing their own gardens and eating from them. So it's exciting to be at this time, because the re-bringing back together of Israel, there's a promise in verse 15 that goes with that, um, they shall no longer be pulled up from the land I've given them. They're there for good once he brings them back. Well, that's kind of a curious thing. Every century that the Jews have existed since Amos, they've gotten kicked out of a nation in some way, shape, or form. Every generation of Jewish people have been sent packing. And they've experienced this for hundreds of years. But God still calls them my people Israel. Not just the royal line of David, but there's now a reference to the Hebrew nation of Israel. It's going to get destroyed, but it'll get rebuilt. The civic nation. So when we see that happening, that gets pretty exciting. We still have people vowing on this earth to destroy the Jews. They're, they're mis, misguided and misled because they're, they're putting themselves against God when they do that. Um, but we've just seen, even in the news this week, we, saw, we still see hatred of the Jewish people, hatred of the nation of Israel, uh, an area that's smaller than, like, basically north to south Israel is, is like going from Mankato to Duluth. We're talking about a sliver of land on this planet that's still the center of the globe's attention. Why? Why is Israel so dang important on this planet? It's just a little plop of land. It's nothing. You, know, you could ask China for a few thousand of those and people could go have a place to live. We have Indian reservations all over the United States that are little slivers of land like Israel. They don't make the news in that kind of way, but Israel does. Israel still is the focus of what God's looking at. And when God says, behold, why can't we take our eyes off Israel? Why, are, why is the nations always paying attention to it. So since the restoration of Israel, it's been in the news constantly since 1948. Who can, who can not note what God's doing in that? God's not done with Israel. There's particular prophecies here that talk about the people, the Hebrews, and there's particular prophecies like this one that talk about the nation of Israel. And, and here's the, at the end of the day, on both counts, at the end of verse 15, says the Lord your God. And he's talking to all of these people that have rejected him, saying, it doesn't matter if you reject or accept the Lord, he's still your Lord. And he's still going to do what he's going to do. Finally, Amos is showing God's word is unbreakable, it's true, and it's proven, and it doesn't move. So when Jesus rises from the dead and says, I will return, no matter if time stops that from happening, and it doesn't matter what the world thinks of Jesus, he's still their Lord. And when he returns, he won't lose one person who seeks after his heart. Not one. Think of a God that makes that kind of promise. Not one soul who loves Jesus will be lost. He won't let one of them drop to the ground. And that same Lord Jesus prayed the same thing. Lord, I haven't lost one of them. And you're all thinking, what about Judas? Right? So that becomes kind of a problem, right? <laughs> well, did Judas's heart seek after God or did Judas seek after money or seek after fame and attention? And so we have a spiritual element here that's going on, and the only person who can answer where your heart is at is you. And if you're seeking after the Lord God Almighty with all your heart, mind, and soul, anything short of that, you should be living in fear of what God's going to do next. But I just think, boy, in my sin, in my, in my brokenness, in all the things I've done wrong, I can just hand those to the Lord and say, God, just forgive me so I can learn to love you better. And God says, that's exactly what I'm looking for, that humility of heart. Just come and serve and let everything else go. It goes away, your anger goes away, your, your self-loathing goes away, and most importantly, I hope, the sin goes away. And then you just start simply serving Lord God with all your heart and all your mind. And then suddenly you're not so worried about the Lord's return anymore. In fact, you start thinking, please, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. Because the sooner you come, the sooner I get to be with you. And that's a beautiful thought for people who love the King.
So Amos gives us a glimpse at the heart of God. The heart of God is one of salvation at the end of Amos, though we've gone through a few chapters where he's talking about judgment. But the end of that is he's not going to judge and mistake who he judges. That's not the God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that not one of us will drop to the ground. So Lord, help us search our heart. Search me, O God. Find any wicked way in me and get rid of it. Because Lord, over everything, I know that you are Lord God Almighty. I can't run to Carmel and hide from you. I can't go to the bottom of sea and get away from you. I can't go east to to north and, and seek the world and try to find something and you're not there. So Lord, help me to, don't give me a famine. Lord, help me to be able to seek out your word and to hear it. So open my ears to what your word has to say. Help me to just submit to it and to put everything else on the altar and burn it up. Lord, I pray that we can serve you with our hearts, our minds, our strength, and our soul. As Jesus prayed, as his servants have prayed throughout history, help us to be those people and to be set apart and consecrated for the work that you have for us in our lives. Lord, help us to not be compromising, to not give in to anything else, but to be aware of that. Lord, I pray for the souls even now of the people that heard Amos throughout the ages. Lord, I just pray for people to respond to those things, those things that God doesn't like. Help us to walk away from those things and to do it quickly. Help us to run to Jerusalem. In a spiritual sense, help us to run to Jesus and to go to him and to escape judgment and so that the house and the, the temple that's covered with Jesus, Lord, will be the thing that covers our sin before your throne. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.